Welcome to the Advancing Man Project podcast. I'm Dave Whitley, your host, and we're going to jump right into today. I'm very excited about this. You know, sometimes when you're screwing around online, you run across someone who has multiple shared interests and you're like, I would really just absolutely love to meet this person, love to hang out with this guy. And thanks to the wonders of modern technology, here we are doing this. I ran across my guest today, Simon Smart, um, a few weeks ago as he was on someone else's podcast or doing an interview or something, some little reel or something like that was really hooked in by what um, the conversation was happening there. And I'm like, I need to get this guy on my show. I need to talk to this guy reached out. We had a messenger conversation back and forth, found out that we had way more in common than I thought we did. And we'll talk more about that as we go along, but um, definitely a case of uh, kindred spirits lurking around multiple shared connections that we had um simon's talking about martial arts stuff qigong stuff some strength stuff masculinity in general is it the is it the core of everything he's doing um one of the things that i read in some of the stuff simon that you had um was about men choosing to hide from their greatness and and that really struck me i want to welcome you to the show i'm looking forward to helping you promote your message and everything that you've got going on this is simon smart on the advancing man project simon thanks a bunch for joining me today Dave, it is great to be here. Um, I love how we connected. And you said something just now about men, you know, hiding from their greatness. I think that a part of us hiding from our greatness is hiding our energy, keeping our energy small. What I found is that when you let your energy out and you let it flow with your unique frequency, it does weird things in the world, like attracts guys like Dave Whitley into my circle, right? Um, not only was I so happy to hear that someone listen to a podcast I was on, but the great Dave Whitley listened to it. Um, I have heard of Dave through some other circles, meditation related circles. I've heard of the great things he's been doing. But then when I, when I saw Dave Whitley pop up on my phone, I thought, hang on a second. I walked through to my son's room and uh, Dave's book is on my son's bookshelf. <laughs> so billions of people on the planet. And uh, not only do we have a lot of people in, in history and things that we've, we've never met, but we've probably trained in a lot of the same arts. Uh, the world is an amazing place when you just relax and flow and let things happen. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about this conversation, Dave. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I, I had forgotten that you that uh, you sent me the photo of my book on your son's bookshelf. That's that's awesome. Um, and something that you just said about uh, about um, hiding from greatness and, and keeping your energy small reminded me of a quote that um my old kung fu sifu used to say uh in southern praying man is kung fu which i don't know if you're familiar with that or not um but it's a it's a southern chinese close quarters combat type uh very very practical application type thing it's it's not this mantis it's it's this mantis right the the primary fist in it is the phoenix eye fist and and um anyway my my teacher used to say be as big as you are and he meant that both in terms of structure when we were practicing the physical aspects of it but also energetically like project that energy out and um i have found i'm that that many times if i'm in a situation where i'm at odds with another person um just by projecting my energy and being bigger that a lot of times that can can sort of you know 
like like yelling at a dog that that's barking at you it'll turn and, and run off sort of stuff do you have you had experience like that before too where where you've you've kind of swollen up energetically not like like stepped up to someone in a come at me bro but just like internally make yourself bigger than than the perceived um the the perception that this other person might have have you had situations like that come up I've had a lot of situations like that. Um, my teacher in Japan, Hatsumi Soke, he talks a lot about when you're training, when you're fighting. He's, he'll tell you, don't focus on the opponent. Focus on the kukan. The kukan means the battle space would be the best translation. The space that the encounter is happening in. So that sounds mysterious to a lot of people. But once you begin to have these experiences of being able to breathe properly, you know, to relax your body and expand your being a little bit past the layers of your skin, uh, you start to understand that you can actually infect an area with your mood and your feeling. And so a lot of uh, the old martial arts, I mean, we were talking before this podcast started about uh, Akira Kurosawa movies, right? The, the classic samurai standoff where they stare at each other for five minutes. Neither of them makes a move. They're just in stance. Maybe there's a few shuffles of the feet, but it's eye contact. And so we don't see anything happening. But what that is really a metaphor for is those two guys are figuring out, figuring out who has the strongest spirit. And so the, in classical samurai literature, you know, the, uh, the battle is won before it even starts because mm -hmm. you already know who the dominant spirit is. Uh, stronger spirit wins. You know, you'll hear that a lot. Um, I actually have had some negative experiences around this, Dave. And this is something that I have to keep my own eye on a lot. Uh, I have a really strong ability to walk into a room and fill the room and magnetize it. It's done a lot of great things for me in my life. But when I'm in a bad mood, when I'm down, it is really easy for me to infect the people around me. So that's kind of an ongoing battle for me. Um, it's my preference when I'm having a hard time to isolate myself from everyone because I don't want to you know, drip my energy and my vibration onto them. Uh, when you're in a relationship, that's a little bit harder because you can't just, you know, stop being in a relationship for a week when things are hard. Right. So, yeah, this this idea of being um, being the stronger spirit, it cuts both ways, like everything in life. Yeah. The the interesting thing about that idea, relating it back to fatherhood, which I always come back to as a, a core principle of or a core subject of of talking about this is I've found in my own experience that my state. Is almost always reflected by my son um and he just turned five last month and so he's going through the the developmental processes of figuring out how to regulate and manage his own emotions and i'm very much the kind of dad who is like feel what you feel so that you can then deal with it right it's very much like a martial training if you never face off with a live opponent and you only practice forms or kata then when you actually encounter a live opponent it's you don't know what's going on you're, you're not fully equipped to deal with it i'm of the opinion that allowing my son to experience these emotions and then talk about it after the fact rather than try to shut him down with all of the boys don't cry stuff which you know that feeds into a whole mental health thing that i'm sure we'll talk about shortly um, I found that a way to help him navigate that is to intentionally use this idea of energy expansion of myself of, okay, I'm going to go and remain in a calm place. 
I'm going to create an environment within myself that he is safe to feel whatever he's feeling. And then my energy feeds him and helps calm him and, and helps him to regulate. So I think that, that, that kind of training as a martial artist, like you said, things, everything cuts both ways. You can clear the room if it's an unpleasant situation and the battles won before it starts in that but this particular kind of battle is internal with with the child trying to I, i'm feeling this and i'm not equipped to handle it what do i do i can create that safe space and that safe energy for him and then that way i don't have to correct him because i am connecting with him um do you do you have a similar experience i do i do you know that's why that's why we call it being the head of the family right the head of the family right. dictates the the vibe the mood the direction of the family uh, not all on your own. You know, it requires um, requires the woman to do her thing as well. Since you brought this up, I, I want to give a model that um, I think about a lot that I share with guys. Please do. Um, since we're talking, since we're talking about um, enveloping our family or our kids or a room with our spirit, let's let's call that a bubble. Okay. So when when a baby before a baby is even born, that baby exists in the bubble of his mother's womb. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's in a little tiny bubble. And then when the baby's born and becomes a child, he exists within the bubble of the family, which is created by the father. If somebody wants to experience this, uh, a practice my teacher would have me do once I kind of connected with my own energy, my own power, my own breathing. He would send me out in the woods and he'd say, hey, Simon, pick a tree, connect with the tree. But then what I want you to do is see if you can envelop the tree with your spirit. To a lot of people, that's going to sound a little wacky, but go out there and try it. See if you can breathe and relax and expand your spirit to hold the tree in your bubble. If you can start to do that, you'll understand that a man's role, we talk about a man's role, you know, one of those roles is being a protector, right? And obviously there's a degree of physical protection that we provide. There's a lot of other things we provide. One of the things I think we ought to provide is this bubble of safe space not only does that bubble through our fierceness and our masculinity act as a barrier to keep out the bad guys and the other bad stuff mm -hmm. from our family and our home uh, it also is a bubble of love and whatever other energy you want to introduce into your home and your family so that's what a man's job is to me when we get into the next level which is warriorship to me, that's about having an even bigger bubble. It's beginning to have the ability, the capability to expand your bubble, not just to your home and your family, but to any other people who are in your space. You know, can you, can you create the restaurant you're eating in with a just nice safe bubble where everyone gets to have a nice dinner and nothing bothers them? Can you begin to expand to your zip code? Can you begin to expand to bigger and bigger and bigger? Uh, to me, that's the real journey of advanced masculinity is how do we go beyond just being a husband and a father to have real utility to the world at large so i hope that's in line with what we're discussing here oh, today. absolutely absolutely there's I, I tend to think of things like that along a continuum and because that's how most things are very few things are are all the way on one end or all the way on the other end of continuum. I mean, if we look at the, at the, at the yin and yang symbol, right. 
each one contains an element of the other. And that's through all philosophical teachings. There it is, right? It, you know, there's, there's, that is contained within that. And what you just described is the, as far as you can go, polar opposite of being a pussy, right? <laughs> I would hope so. Yes. Yes, definitely. And that, that, it brings me back to something we were talking about before I hit um, hit the record button here. We were talking about fatherhood. We were talking about children. We were talking about guidance. And we were talking about something that I've become more and more vocal about lately, which is the idea, um, which is, it's factual. It's backed up by research that putting your hands on a child, punishing a child physically um, is not only ineffective it's actually counterproductive if we start looking at what's going on there and you said something or you you actually started talking about this and um i shut you off and i said i want to i want to record this and i want to do the introduction first so so here we are and like i told you this is this is two guys talking here but i wanted to make sure that that i set that up and that we circled back to it you were talking about um what's going on in the state of the of the father when it gets to that point and I I'm going to leave it with that and just let you, let you ramble on about it. I will ramble for hours. Yeah, let's go. So I, firstly, let me caveat this. Uh, I try my best to be a father. I don't know if I'm a good father or not because my son's 13. Uh, I judge people based on results. We don't have a result yet. So let's see how this all shakes out. Having said that Dave brought up the idea that striking your child as punishment is counterproductive. And it really made me think because I've never had to strike my son. Now I have, because he trains with me in martial arts, but I've never had to strike him out of punishment or anger. And maybe I just got lucky and I got the kid that doesn't need that kind of correction. Or maybe other things that I've done in how I show up with him and how I've raised him has somewhat negated the need for that. When I'm coaching other men, I do work with guys who have at some point punished their kids with, with physical punishment. And I make a really important distinction. Here's the distinction. There is a world of difference between striking your child as a correction, which I may still not agree with, but there's a difference between that and striking your child because you yourself are angry, frustrated, and upset. If you as an adult are using a child to work out your frustrations and your own trauma, I think you have a problem. I don't think that's helping the child. I don't think that's helping you. And I don't think that's appropriate behavior for a grown man. So where I go from with this is, is I think even bigger. I often give my son the impression that I'm angry with him when he doesn't do what I ask him to do, when he doesn't do things that he knows are his responsibility. Sometimes he will think I'm angry, but guess what? I'm not angry. There's two reasons I'm not angry. Number one, his failure to do things is a consequence of my failure to lead. So how could I be angry at him? He's just a child. Secondly, if a child of 13 or eight or six has the ability to make me as a grown man angry, I have a problem. Like if a child just being a kid can make me physically have the biological response of anger in my body 
imagine what my enemy could do to me. Exactly. My enemy could destroy me because I am so emotionally weak and vulnerable. So if I found myself really genuinely getting angry with a child, that would be a sign that I probably need to do some work on myself. Because I'm never, I'm never upset at him. I'm upset at myself. I'm upset at my failure to lead, my failure to give clear communication, my failure to set expectations, whatever it happens to be. It's on me. I'm the man. And I, I, I love that. And I don't want to um, assign definitions to things that you're saying that aren't accurate. So you've mentioned the word failure multiple times. I think of failure myself in the terms that I learned from essentially from Napoleon Hill, that failure is simply an indication that your plan didn't work. Failure is, is by definition, it has to happen. It is learning. Failure is learning. We know this from, from training martial arts. We know this from whatever other interests we have. We know this, we look at, at child development and we look at children learning how to roll over or sit up or walk or talk. You know, it's really cute when a three or four year old child mispronounces something. My son's five. He still calls the flashing red light medical emergency vehicle an ambulance. And I will not correct him on that. He'll figure it out eventually and the cuteness will be gone. And that'll be a stage of maturity that he has. But, you know, we could call that a mistake. We could call that a failure in his ability to pronounce it. But really, he's just figuring it out and learning it as he goes. So when you speak of your failure to, to impart something to your son. What I hear you say is I'm doing things this way and I'm doing this thing and that thing. And when we get to this situation where I'm calling it a failure, it's not that I've been defeated by this thing or that I've lost this thing. It's that, Oh, here is an opportunity for me to rearrange the, the, the particles of what's going on here and use this as as the impetus for learning how to do things better. To me, that's what failure is. That is how I frame failure. And I have a feeling you have a very similar um, definition of failure as just based on the way that you're using the word. Is that true? I think I do. I think a lot of people use failure with a, a really strong emotional connotation. Uh, I simply mean it as uh, a mission or submission was not achieved. Hmm. An outcome that I was designing for did not happen on time and accurately. Uh, yeah. That's a failure. That's a failure. Okay. Something, yeah. something did not work to plan. Doesn't mean it's not the end of the world. It's nothing to get bent out of shape over. It's just okay. Now I got to correct. Uh, yes. To me, the real, the real F word is fault. This is a word that drives me crazy. I've seen this so many times in business environments, Dave, where something doesn't go to plan. You know, quarterly targets are missed, uh, team members do the wrong thing. And what's the first thing a group of alleged adults wants to do? Assign find blame. Out, find out whose fault it is. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I've been on the planet for a little while and not once in my life have I ever seen finding out whose fault it was create a solution. Never. So that is powerful. I, I am religious about this in when I'm wearing uh, my, my business uh, hat. I don't care whose fault it was. I don't care to blame. People finding fault are simply trying to make sure that it's not their fault. They know, they know it's human nature that, you know, it's going to get pinned on someone. They're just trying to make sure it's not them. It's childish. It's immature. 
It's not the mindset of a leader or a winner. I don't care. All I want to do when something goes wrong is sit down with my team and figure out, cool, here's what is the reality of this current situation in this moment? What is the reality we want to create? And what are the steps to get there? I don't care about anything else. Now, later on, we might do uh, you know, a little deep dive into what caused the, 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 the mistake, what caused the failure, and start to build some guide rails, you know, start to build some structure to make sure that doesn't repeat. But this idea of fault, is, it's, uh, it's a mental cancer. Can't stand it. I agree completely. And I think that I think that, that mode of thinking ties in very intimately with the the need to complain about things. You know, there's there's recreational outrage is is the term that that I've heard used when people go on social media and they just bitch about stuff and that's it. And there's and I get it. There's like there's a chemical reaction that happens. It it makes me feel superior if I can go and complain about something even if I don't offer a solution to it. I think that that's hardwired into us and that that is actually at the root of why we're the dominant species on the planet because if we go back several thousand years to tribal days when survival was was incumbent upon our ability to be able to recognize a threat and then either avoid the threat or deal with the threat um i think that that the root of all complaining lies in that bit of our dna we are we are wired to look for the negative and in the relatively safe world that we live in now, yes. instead of going out and saying, oh no, there's a bear or there's a saber-toothed tiger, we need to go do the thing, you know, we need to hide or whatever. Now it's just, you know, I'm triggered because someone made a post on Facebook and I'm upset about it, you know, and and which goes back to the, the thing that you were talking earlier about if a child can dysregulate a grown man, that grown man is grown in body only. He's not grown mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. And, um, to that point, I, I I told you earlier that I had a quote from an article that that uh, that fit into that. I'm gonna I'm gonna share this quote and then we'll we'll go yes. back and and pick up on what we were just talking about. But I I wanna I wanna get your thoughts on what I'm about to read you. And this isn't this isn't rehearsed. Simon has never heard this or read this before. This is a quote from developmentalscience.com magazine, article written by Diana Devecha. I'm probably butchering that name. Who's a PhD? in psychology i think and um within this article which is entitled hitting children leads to trauma not better behavior and um i do want to put that caveat in there you said something about um striking your son during martial practice that's different that's like getting hit in football right it's it's that's part of skill development this is that's not part of the um um the discipline in the true sense of the word discipline to guide not discipline as it gets misused as um a polite way to say punish or abuse right but um this lines up with what you said i think and i'm i'm curious to hear your thoughts on it she says what many people won't admit is that hitting a child can provide an emotional release and a fleeting sense of power for the grown up an adult may feel frustrated that they've lost control of the child, but when they strike the child, the child stops what they're doing, usually stops trying, stop, starts crying. The adult feels vindicated by getting the child's attention. Their pent-up frustration or anger is released, and they believe that, quote, it worked, and that strategy becomes reinforced. Many parental feelings are masked by anger, fear, alarm, loss, grief, shock, shame, etc., and lashing out can momentarily transfer the uncomfortable energy onto the child, a much less powerful target. 
So what that says to me is it's a, it's literally an act of bullying. And I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think my thoughts run along the same lines. It's an interesting point that the behavior does stop. You know, there's there's a thing in psychology and your linguistic programming called a pattern interrupt. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people have a pattern of behavior. Um, you know, Tony Robbins has a great story where he's talking to someone, they start complaining, and he just uh, flicks some water in their face. Oh, they don't know what to do now, right? So they go they go from a behavior that was a program they were running to not knowing what to do now, which creates a moment when a new behavior can be created. So I can see the positive argument for striking a child as a pattern interrupt, but come on, there are better pattern interrupts than that. And certainly I do think, I do, I do agree with the author that most punishment by adults is an attempt to soothe themselves and very little to do with the, what's best for the child. I agree with that. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. And then of course the, uh, the truly detrimental part there being a yeah go ahead the the truly detrimental part there i think is that the pattern interrupt that you described then becomes the new pattern yes yes because the the emotionally immature adult turns into the proverbial little boy with a hammer and and everything in the world becomes a nail yes and what are we doing we're you know children don't necessarily learn from what we do or from what we say, they learn from what we do. So what they're learning is that when they are under stress in the future, hitting someone, striking someone is the way to release that stress. Um, there are reasons to hit someone in this world, but to deal with your own stress is a pretty weak excuse, in, in my opinion. So yeah, we're just passing on behaviors. You know, at a very extreme level, you know, most, most men who beat their wives learned that from their dad. Sure. Most child abusers learned that from being an abusee. Uh, it's very sad and it's very tragic, but you know our our traumas are passed on generationally through this kind of behavior. Uh, I I believe that being triggered is a real gift if you take it as a gift. Being triggered is an amazing mirror into our own psychology and our own weaknesses and our our own places where we're hurt. So what triggers you really is like shining a light onto where you probably need to do some letting go, do some inner investigation, do some processing. If we could all be triggered a lot, but use that trigger as a trigger for working on ourselves, very little generational trauma would be passed on. That is a fantastic you know, way to put it. In other words, our children would get what they ought to get in the first place, which is a fresh start to grow into who they want to become without all the baggage that we throw onto them through our child raising. Very well put. Very well put. I am very much of the idea that, um, as you said, kids learn from what we model rather than from what we try to teach them. And, um, that that our job as fathers is not to control our children, but to control ourselves and to set that environment up and model what it looks like to be in control of ourselves. And and circling back around to what you said, a man who who becomes so upset by the behavior of a young child that he feels the need to hit that child um, is not in control of himself. Definitely. 
Very um, true. And I hear what you're saying about it not being our job to control our children. I want to add a little color mm-hmm. to that comment. In traditional Native American society, the birth of a child is a big celebration, a beautiful gift. The next ceremony that child will be involved in will be a first moccasin or first steps ceremony when they're 18 months, two years old, you know, when they start walking. Uh, The reason it's celebrated is they went from being a horizontal being to being a vertical being. And now they can begin to move around somewhat independently of their mother. So that's a very important transition. However, at that point, they don't have a lot of responsibility. The responsibilities of a boy at a young age are simply to learn, which means model, pay attention, and to stay alive. And staying alive at that age literally means doing what you're told. Don't run across the road means don't run across the road. So children at that age have a, I believe, a evolutionary desire hardwired to do what their parents tell them. Because kids that didn't at that age would not survive. Because we tell them what to do, they do it, and they live, right? The world used to be a lot more dangerous than it is now, so that's a hardwired behavior. When boys get to be 12, 13, 14, what do we know they do? Right? They start to fight back. They start to fight for their independence. They start to argue with their father. We start to get that friction. Well, there's a reason for that. Right? They're breaking that behavior of being a small child and having to do what they're told to survive. And now they're beginning the journey into adulthood. And so while I see a lot of parents complaining, how do I deal with this friction with my, my son especially, uh, I think fathers should embrace that. Them breaking the bond with you at that age is vital to their development but then one of two things can happen either that bond is broken for life because you fought with them so much or you understood the dynamic you understood how vital that dynamic is and you covertly supported it and supported them which creates an opportunity for that bond to be remade traditionally when a boy goes out on his manhood quest his mother grieves because her baby is dying and never coming back. What comes back from the wilderness is a man. So the father at that moment can no longer relate to his son as a boy, because now he's a man. A new relationship has to be created. And so where this ties into our conversation here, Dave, is I think that working with a child under 10, 11-ish, ought to be fairly instructive. When my son was 11 and a half, 12, I moved to a coaching model. I stopped telling him what to do. I moved into, okay, here's what we want to happen. Here's the challenge you have. What do you think we should do? And for the next 10 years and probably 20, 30 years, (laughs) I'm his coach. And I hope that as he moves through this phase of, you know, fighting me, which I, which I'm excited about because it's necessary. Um, I hope we can kind of maintain that friendship and that bond, however that needs to shake out. I I like that you are framing things that way developmentally about the like the first steps or first moccasin and then what happens at the teenage years. And, and I agree completely that I think that's an evolutionarily wired thing. And I loved what you said about at that point of those tween early teen years when it's a coming of age for a boy 
and there's that friction there's that pushback and the bond of of man and child gets broken and there's the opportunity to rebuild that bond i think that if we again go back thousands of years yes that's wired into us evolutionarily and i think that it is at that point that the young one either leaves and goes and starts his own tribe or he leaves goes through his quest comes back and becomes a man in the tribe where he was raised and i think that it's very necessary for us as fathers to understand that the way that that plays out in modern times is are we going to have contact with this person anymore or not and there's no reason not to have contact with anyone i mean you're you know hundreds of miles away from me and here we are with technology talking face to face something that was unheard of you know just a few years ago a few decades ago um but i think that the idea that that we can either embrace that as part of the developmental process and celebrate the friction between a father and a son as much as we celebrate first steps or first words or learning to you know do anything that a child learns to do you know learning the alphabet learning to write his name you know it's if if you write your name right now i'm like big deal simon you know but my son writes his name and we celebrate it every time because he's he's getting better and better at that skill I love the way you framed that. And I love the way that you circle it back around into what is the true essence, I believe, um, of masculinity. And um, again, we haven't talked in person before you and I, we've talked more since we started recording this than we, than we did in our, in our messages back and forth. This is, this is unplanned. This is unrehearsed. Um, But I'm curious what, Based on all of that, and based on what I know about you, what are some common modern misconceptions about what masculinity actually is? It's gotten a bad rap in the past few years because of 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 males who think they're being masculine who are just being assholes, in my opinion. So, what what are some common misconceptions from your point of view, being being in the world you're in, doing the work that you do? about what masculinity truly is? It's a great question. <clears throat> I got involved in what has become the masculinity movement in 2001. Back then, we were talking a lot about the loss of rite of passages, mm-hmm. uh, the lack of elder wisdom being passed on to the next generation, uh, how those traditional initiations had been replaced with gang initiations, drugs, sure. video games, and the crisis that that, that was causing uh, at that time, it wasn't a real popular thing to talk about. Uh, the crisis wasn't uh, acute enough for people to really, really pay attention. Uh, so it's been interesting for me, you know, to fast forward 20 plus years and see that the crisis of masculinity is actually a thing that is spoken about in public circles uh, widely. Uh, so we all know there's a problem. We're not seeing a lot of great solutions, but where it comes down to is this. I think that at a certain point in history, manhood became, let's say, let me say that differently, masculinity became a lot less about protecting and providing and a lot more about controlling. We see the same dynamic in royal families and kingship. So once upon a time, if you read, for example, the Grail legends, the king was a servant of the people. 
in the grail legend when the king becomes sick the land becomes sick the land ceases to be able to grow crops and the people begin to get depressed and hungry and so the health of the king is directly related to the health of the kingdom because he is the the fountainhead and the spiritual leader of the kingdom in modern times kingship became more about controlling the population using them as slaves using them to create wealth using them the young men to go off and have wars for no other reason than that's what you know the king felt like and I, I bring that up because I think that's a really good model of what may have happened with masculinity at the same time. It became less about selfless service to the tribe and more about selfish aggrand aggrandizement of the man and controlling women and controlling. So that, of course, everything, everything that ever happens in this universe has a reaction. The reaction was things like feminism women no longer wanting to be controlled by men, wanting to go into the workplace to be financially independent, emotionally independent, socially independent. And a part of that whole process in the 50s and 60s was a characterizing of men as these male chauvinist pigs, which led to a destruction of masculine spaces, a destruction of masculine culture, uh, and massive confusion over what it meant to be a man. Now, some of that old architecture probably rightly did need to be removed, but it's we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and now boys are growing up without any real idea of, of what a man is beyond some stuff they saw on social media, uh, some, some Dan Bilzerian, some Andrew Tate. Those guys are, are really you know, bringing a lot of uh, boys around to masculinity. Uh, so I, I salute them for that, but... Andrew Tate is a great example of a guy who does show strong masculinity, but has really failed historically to show any of the, the good qualities of manhood. So masculinity to me is just an, an energy that we show up in the world with. It's the decisive, cutting edge of, of the human spirit. Manhood is about responsibility. Manhood is about structure. And so, you know, if you want to go on social media and talk about the role of a man in masculinity, but you made your living from uh, running cam girls and, and, you know, using girls for sex on the internet, um, that's not really great manhood. Yeah, there's opinion. a definite disconnect there. <laughs> disconnect there. So even our models of masculinity for young boys today are still pretty disconnected. I think the biggest thing, which is at the, the, the heart of this misunderstanding, is the difference between leadership and control. Uh, control is making people do things. Masculine leadership in a household, in a relationship, in a company, in an organization is, is about allowing the free will of the people who are in our space, but creating structure, guidance, vision, uh, and steps towards mutual outcomes. That's leadership. So I think it's the role of a man as well as basic things like protection and provisioning is to be that that leader, but not out of force, out of out of example, and out of um, just creating a structure where everyone can live in a way that they can get what they want out of life. Definitely, uh, Napoleon Hill talks about leadership like that in the uh, in Think and Grow Rich. He he lists out, I think it's eleven or so principles of successful leaderships and also the major causes of failures for leaders. And he 
categorizes leaders as um, they're either a leader by force or a leader by consent. And you just explained that very well. I think that the leading by force, um, that is that misuse of masculine energy that that could be directed towards something productive, but instead it comes from this place of of low self-image, of of perceiving myself as less than, and therefore I'm going to dominate everything around me to try externally to, to attempt to feel better internally. And what winds up happening is that misery just gets spread and, and it gets put off on other people rather than, as you said, be, be the provider, be the protector and lead by that example. And um, I know that some of the, a few of the um, principles that, or attributes of successful leaders that Napoleon Hill talks about. The very first one I, I know for sure is unwavering courage. And it doesn't take a lot of courage to overpower someone who is weaker than you and make them subservient, right? That doesn't require any courage. Um, and then I, rem I know certainly that one of the major causes of failure, I think it's the first one that he lists is an inconsistency of belief and goal and action as related to the identity. So if we compare those two right there, if if I believe that I'm being courageous when really all I'm doing is being a bully, I have an inconsistency in my own belief system that doesn't apply to to actual productivity and actual leadership. And I feel like that is is in line with what you're describing. And I'm just I, I gotta I gotta say again, I'm really really grateful that we wound up on this call together today. And, and I don't think it was an accident, like you said earlier. So um, you are shining light on stuff from a perspective that I don't already have, which is really cool. You know, like if we're, if we're sitting at the table, um, I'm sitting in this seat, Simon's sitting in that seat. You were, you were actually taking me and putting me in your seat at the table and allowing me to look at the table from a completely different point of view um, that is harmonious with the one that I already had, but it's shining light on some things that I haven't necessarily thought about from that particular angle. So I am grateful to you for, for just talking to me I, today, man. It's, it's awesome. I love that. You know, I went to law school, Dave, and one of the first things <clears throat> I was taught was if you want to argue against someone, the first thing you should do is understand their argument and understand their perspective. And so you can agree with my perspective. You can disagree, but um, I think part of, I think an element of wisdom, Dave, is being able to see an issue, being able to see the world from all kinds of perspectives, rather than just the one we're stuck in. Because when we're stuck in one perspective, we're stuck, right? In uh, it, the ninja talks about having the mind and eyes of God. God. Well, part of what that means is God can see everything because he's omnipresent from every perspective. So being able to see all sides of an issue, even when you disagree with, you ought to be able as a man to argue the other side of your own perspective. Um, going back to what we were talking about leadership, I want to give, uh, I think, a really relatable example to some of the guys listening here. It's kind of a cliche in modern society that on a Friday night, the guy says to the woman, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? Where do you want to go? And she says, what did she say, Dave? I don't know. I don't know. Where do you want to go? And it goes on and on and on. So what do we have, right? We have a void of leadership. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I did my first Tough Mudder. The final obstacle on the Tough Mudder used to be an A-frame full of uh, spaghetti noodles, full of 10,000 volts that you had to run through. 
They were great. What the greatest thing about that event was they set up the beer tent for after you finish the run right next to the A-frame of the people getting electrocuted. So you'd already done it. You got to have a beer and you got to laugh. <laughs> you got to laugh at everyone else getting electrocuted because they would run through. The shock would hit their spine. Their legs would fail because the signal would be disruptive and they'd fall face flat in the mud. But I noticed a really interesting thing. I noticed that even though people were arriving at the obstacle pretty regularly, you'd get a clump of people standing in front of the obstacle. You could get like 10, 20, 30 people. And they'd be, they'd be standing around talking, right? And I wonder, you know, what are they talking about? And they would say, well, we're talking about the best way to get through the obstacle. But here's the joke. There is no best way. You just have to fucking go. That's the whole plan, fucking go. So what I noticed was eventually one guy would show up and he would go and then 20 or 30 other people would go right behind him. So hmm. what they were really doing was they were standing around waiting for a leader. There is a massive void of leadership in our world. If you want to be a leader, just show up and say, follow me, and then just try not to fuck it up. It ain't that hard. So we got the man and the woman. Saturday night, where are we going to go? I don't know. Where do you think we should go? No leadership. Here's how I handle this. I tell my girlfriend, hey, we're going out on Saturday night. Is that okay with you? So what I'm doing is I'm expressing that I want to go out. I'm expressing that I think we should go out. I'm making sure that works for her. So no free will is being destroyed. We're both online. And then I say, cool, we're going to leave at six. Uh, why don't you wear a skirt and a heels? Um, go for kind of like a, a chilled out, casual, business casual vibe. And so she knows the time we're leaving and she knows approximately what, she, what kind of style she, should be, she, she wants to wear. Uh, I do that. And I, don't, I don't tell her where we're going because that's my job. My job is to take her somewhere, feed her, give her a glass of wine, make sure we have a good time. And the outcome is more connection between the two of us and an opportunity to talk and connect. So I know the outcome. I know what I'm going to do. All she needs to know is what she needs to take care of, which is what to wear and what time to be ready. Now, I know a lot of people would see that as me being sexist and controlling, but there's no control here. If she doesn't want to go out, she doesn't have to go out. If she doesn't want to be ready on time, she doesn't have to be ready on time. If she wants to vary from what I recommended for clothing, she can, but she doesn't want to because wherever we end up, she wants to be wearing the right kind of clothing for the environment so she looks good and fits in. So to me, I think that's an elegant example of leadership and taking charge and making sure the thing happens without being controlling. I like that. That's good advice. A lot of times, you know, when guys have a challenge uh, with money, with kids or whatever it is in their life, a lot of times they'll go to their women and say, you know, here's the problem. Well, one thing I've noticed, Dave, is that as men, we really like making decisions. We have really strong decision-making muscles and we enjoy making a decision and moving. Uh, most women, not all, most, find decision-making kind of exhausting and kind of difficult and don't really want the responsibility. So that's one difference between the masculine and feminine is men like to take charge and make decisions. So since we're good at it and we enjoy it, we should do it more in a way that she doesn't need to. So what I recommend to guys is if you've got a problem you need to go discuss with your woman, don't just go to her with a problem. Go to her and say, hey, here's what's going on. And here's my plan. Here's what I think we should do. I think this will work. But I want to get your opinion. What do you think? And a lot of times she'll say, 
yeah, that sounds pretty good, but did you think of this? And that's, that's an elegant way of structuring masculine feminine discussions where there is leadership without the control, which caused all this problem in the first place. Right. And that's, that's, that's taking it back to its energetic root, right? I mean, if we, if we go down to the very core level, energetically, you made the distinction earlier between being a man and, and masculinity or manhood and, and, and masculinity energetically elementally if we're if we can go book of five rings on this a little bit energetically earth and fire let's go the masculine energy is earth and fire right it is stability and it is a, a advancement right um water and air are feminine energies right they are very receptive and you know just as the as the the water can erode the earth the the air can also fuel the fire and so they it, it's important to to understand that each of these energies has a role and really it's all one thing we in our limited ability to comprehend the universe around us and its and its its grandness have segmented things out so that we can attempt to understand and then to explain it and then impart that wisdom and knowledge um i think that that you made a good point earlier about how post-industrial revolution um masculine energy and feminine energy being sort of mixed into this into this societal place that that it, it's not the way in society doesn't line up energetically with the way the universal laws work in a lot of respects right and um i'm shifting gears a little bit here using that sort of to 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 lead into this because i know that on um warriorprotocol.com which is a, a site of yours a website of yours yes yes sir yeah um you talk about men living in hard mode and you talk about um i'm just going to read from it right here it says i've had friends kill themselves drown themselves in drugs burn business and marriage to the ground check out not trying anymore and essentially become living zombies um if we if we get up and take another seat at the table and look at that from a different point of view what we're really talking about is men's mental health there in 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 varying degrees right and societal expectations which we were you know talking about energetically not lining up with societal stuff um <clears throat> men still are, are men's mental health issues are not addressed in a way i think that that is doing much good to to put it politely right um and i, I read that bit on your site and i thought okay this this will be a good topic for i, I want to hear what simon has to say about this so like i guess essentially how does societal societal expectations affect men's ability and even their willingness to address mental health issues especially when it comes to to seeking help or support because you know on one hand we've got terrible things that are happening as, as far as men, men's mental health goes. But then we're also from a very young age bombarded with things like uh, boys don't cry. Stop whining like a little girl, that kind of stuff. So I would just love to hear you um, riff on that for a little while. Oh, that's such a big topic. Um, I think that I don't have any answers to this, Dave, but I think the answers lie in nature. 
I think the more divorced and disconnected from our nature we become, the more mentally unhealthy the result is going to be. So that's one reason why I spend a lot of time looking at what is the natural way for a man to be in his masculinity. Society preaches an entirely different way, which is disconnected from nature, and we see the results. We see depression through the roof, suicide, uh, men in prison, uh, men on drugs and alcohol and porn and all these things. We, we see uh, generations of men whose potential is being largely wasted, uh, I think at root because we're so out of um, touch with our, our real inner nature. I will say that uh, medication use among women is also at an all-time high. So it's not like someone's winning and someone's losing. You know, everyone is losing. Uh, I think that society is very confused for a start. Um, let me give you an example of this. Uh, we, American culture consistently tells people, you just need to love yourself. Love yourself more, love yourself more, love yourself more. Uh, well, that's what narcissists did. And American society currently is obsessed with how evil narcissists are. Well, if you tell everyone to love themselves, they become narcissists. And now that's bad. So society can't even square the circle with itself, right? All these sand bites we hear, there is some subtlety to it, but a lot of things don't make sense. Uh, I think that men do cry, but they cry for very different reasons than women. Uh, probably cry a lot less. I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings, Dave, is that when women cry, crying is a way to express their pain. Well, when men express their pain, we don't express our pain through crying. We express it through anger. Crying for a woman and for a man is a very safe experience for everyone around them. A man expressing his frustration through anger can be a very dangerous thing. So I do see why society wants to have men cry instead of express their anger naturally because there are very few places where a man can actually go to express his anger naturally, right? Men who go to the gym have a much lower rate of depression and suicide than men don't. Now, obviously there's a fitness element, there's a self-care element, but man, I, you're, I bet you're the expert on this. Getting angry and tearing up the weights is a great way to get that out of your system, which is different from crying. Yes, um, I I make a distinction in my mind between anger and aggression totally. and and assertiveness. Right to to me, those that's uh, the anger and aggression is the shadow side of the coin of being assertive, mm -hmm. of that of that fire energy. If we're gonna you know go elemental with it like that, um, and for any anybody that's listening, I. I sometimes kind of forget that I'm that other people are going to wind up listening to this for anyone who who doesn't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about elemental stuff for the book of five rings Miyamoto Masashi wrote a book called the book of five rings where he breaks everything down into um, these universal elements of earth water fire wind and the void and I know based on previous conversations with Simon and his uh, martial background that I don't have to explain what those mean i can just talk about earth element he's going to know what i'm talking about so for anyone who's unsure about that i can uh 
I'm happy to talk to you about um, the Book of Five Rings and Masashi and how that samurai Japanese culture stuff applies. But um, circling back around to something you said a minute ago about um, loving yourself and how society continues to preach this. And yes, they do. And and I think that that's a case of a uh, a soundbite of information that it, it's very much like like the Bruce Lee quote that everyone likes to throw around of absorb what is useful, reject what is useless. They've taken the middle of a quote and left the ends out of it, and it means something different. I'm sure you're familiar with the full quote. Um, research your own experience, which means do the thing, not form an opinion without having done it. Then absorb what is useful from it, reject what is useless, and useless just means that it doesn't work for you. It might work well for me. And then the last bit of that is make it uniquely your own. So when we take quotes from quotes out of context, they mean different things. And so I think that love yourself. Yes, absolutely. Love yourself. But I think that at a deeper level, what this means is become the person who is worthy of your own love. If there's something about yourself that you don't love, make it so that you do love yourself. Because if you're just sitting around wallowing in self-loathing, self-pity, and self-hatred, and you're told to love yourself, that doesn't do any good. It's like, okay, I'm going to accept that I'm the way that I am. Acceptance and love aren't the same thing, right? I can accept that there are these areas of my life that 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 I don't like. What are you going to do about it? And that's where we go. Feminine energy is acceptance. Masculine energy is advancement. And, and, and you know, for lack of a better term, penetrative, Right assertiveness and so i think that taking that out of context of love yourself yes it's very important love yourself love yourself enough to to become better um and and i had never put that into like literally when you were speaking early i wrote down love yourself and then drew an arrow and said be worthy of love be someone worthy of love um you inspired that to me so i thank you for saying that and thank you for triggering that thought and for letting me sit at your seat at the table um, as we were, we were perceiving that. Yeah, I think that there's, there's a big distinction between uh, I mean, loving yourself in your totality is a good <clears throat> foundation, but there are plenty of parts about myself that I don't love because I want to make them better. And as I make them better, I will love those parts more. Um, that, that's just subtlety of thinking, right? I find, you've probably found this as well, society, social media, sound bites is very one-dimensional in terms of advice. Uh, there's very little nuance. And yeah, things taken out of context. You know, the old quote, uh, jack of all trades, master of none, makes the jack of all trades sound bad. But the full quote, I think, is master of all trades, well, jack of all trades, master of none, but still better than a master of one. Still right. more useful. So yeah, context is everything. And so, yeah, I, I love that. I think that it is, it is part of our fire element as men. Our, that, that advancement is constantly looking to improve ourselves, constantly looking to be better. So it's one thing to say, you know, I accept absolutely where I am, who I am in this moment. It's a very powerful statement. But that doesn't mean I want to stay who I am in this moment for all the other moments that are coming. <laughs> context, definitely. Because it, it could be a lot better. Definitely. Now you mentioned earlier about going and hitting the weights and going to the gym and, and that sort of stuff as an act of self-care. Absolutely. It totally is taking care of this vessel that our spirits are housed in for sure. Um, I would like to hear 
from you what self-care practices or routines have been particularly helpful for you in maintaining your mental wellness, um, especially while balancing all your all the responsibilities that you have, um, not the least of which, and maybe at the top of the list, is fatherhood. So talk to us about that. This is something that has really changed throughout my life. I'm 44, so I'm entering what, what the Taoists would consider, you know, the second stage of, of manhood. Uh, the way that I manage my energy now is real different from when I was in my 20s and 30s. Uh, when I was in Japan, Dave, I used, to, I used to train my strikes on trees. You know, I'd find a young tree and get permission, and I would punch and kick that for an hour till my hands were, were gnarly. Uh, that was an incredible self-care experience for me then because I had a lot of anger and a lot of frustration and just a lot of energy that I had to get out. So every time I struck a tree, the tree gifted me its roots and let me send that energy out of my body down through the roots of the tree into the earth. Later, I learned how to ground myself with my own feet better. I don't need to do that as much now. Uh, these days, Dave, you know, I, I like to, um, I like to get up with the sun. I used to be Real, really a night animal you know as a creative i like to be up late that was that was big in my 20s and 30s a lot of guys i speak to entering their 40s find themselves waking up early uh, i like to go outside in the sunlight that's my first thing uh, right now i'm in arizona but my pool's down to about 45 degrees so uh, i'll jump straight in my pool do a few laps uh, i've got some uh, i got some kettlebells in the pool so i'll do some underwater training in the cold water uh, that wakes me up and frankly, Dave, nothing else going on that day is going to be as painful, most likely, as uh, jumping in that pool when I'm half awake. Totally steals the need for any coffee. Uh, and then on a, on a good day, I will take 45 minutes and I'll go do standing meditation or sitting meditation. Um, I do that, number one, because that's a practice that I'm committed to for life as a martial artist and as a man. Number two, because that sets me up for the day. There is a world of difference between Simon just getting up, working, grabbing my phone, getting on social media, getting engaged in all that noise. There's a world of difference between who I'll be a few hours after that versus if I do my morning routine properly. So, you know, I'll, I'll sit, slow my breath, connect with myself, you know, bring some peace and some energy into my body. And then once I'm really aligned, um, I like to breathe in and out with the universe, which I know you're, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll, you know, I'll gather some really great, positive, loving energy in myself and I'll send that out to the world. Uh, I'll send that out to clients. Uh, my son's only with me half the time. So I'll, you know, I'll send some to him. Uh, to me, that's part of uh, some re a really subtle level of, of providing for the people in my, in my realm. Uh, and then, you know, then I'll get up and, and start working. If I find myself getting off track during the day, um, I like to work out. I like to train martial arts, but man, sometimes 20 burpees, 20 push-ups, gets me out of my head. Uh, one thing that I will say, I think this is really important as men, almost all of our problems in life come from our head and being stuck in it. Uh, I talk a lot about disconnection of modern men. The first disconnection I work with men on is the disconnection from the body. When you're over-intellectual, every problem has to be looked at from every perspective. We always need more data. There's never enough data to make a decision. It goes on and on, spiraling forever. So whenever I find myself in that place, I will find a way to reconnect with my body. 
be that a workout, be that just standing and breathing, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I want to connect with myself. I want to connect with my body. I want to connect with God and the spirit. I want to connect with power and purpose. And when I do those things, I become so connected with myself that it starts to overflow, right? And then now from that space, I can connect with my woman. From that space, I can connect with my child. From that space, I can connect with other men properly. Um, I can connect with, you know, what is true in the world. But if I don't do that work on myself, man, I'm a fucking maniac by 11 a.m. Yeah, it's like almost the, the, the way you're describing it, to put it in a, to draw like a, a martial comparison, it's almost like charging, rolling out of bed and charging out onto the battlefield without putting on your armor, without making the, the, the necessary preparations personally to be able to go out and face that. And it just leaves you vulnerable, not in the good sense of I'm opening up and being vulnerable as a as a human being but it leaves you vulnerable to the detrimental energetic effects of everything that's going on in the world so i think about think about being a, a warrior or a general back in the day not only would you put on your armor before battle um you would have priests come in and they would they would have their censers of, of incense and they'd priest you and they'd, they'd place benedictions on you and they'd bless you and you would commit to your mission. You know, you'd probably you'd probably write out your oath on a piece of paper that would be inside your armor. Um, the king would go out before battle and pour libations, and he'd pour alcohol on the ground for the gods. Those guys back in the day, they understood mental, physical, spiritual preparation. And then modern people, because we're fucking idiots, get up, grab some coffee, turn on CNN or social media and look for something to be outraged. So, you know, 10 minutes into our day, we're already angry, on tilt, upset. No wonder we're hitting our kids. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're living in a way that is instantaneously putting us in chaos. I, I've gotten to a place for me where I will not watch the news. I don't care about news stories. I know there are bad things going on in the, in the world. Um, people get angry because, you know, don't you care? Yeah, I care, but I can't do anything about it. What I care more about is my responsibilities as a man. I have a circle which is only so big. I'm going to focus on that circle. And whatever's happening in Ukraine or Israel or Africa, which, you know, I'm old enough now that I'm seeing repeats of repeats of repeats. This shit never ends. I'm not going to let that get in my head anymore. Can't afford it. Will not do it. Not good for my mental health. So actually, I think cutting out all the inbound vectors of chaos in our life is as important maybe even more than the practices we do to center ourselves definitely that that makes me think of a i'm going to paraphrase this because i can't really call it a quote i'd have to look it up but i'm paraphrasing what i think is a quote from wallace waddles where he essentially says discard anything that you have outgrown and if if we've been in a in a place where we were needing to know things that are going on in the world and we realize that this is actually causing problems. I've outgrown it. This does not help me in any way. And it's actually detrimental to me. Just cut it out, as you said, right? Was it Masashi said, do nothing that is of no use? Do nothing which is of no use. Yeah, you, you, somebody can freak out to me about World War III coming and they've been watching on the news and they're, they're all upset. Um, did you review your medical training today? Do you have a fire extinguisher in your house? Right. 
have you have you made sure that your 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 trigger work is good in the last month because that's a fungible skill by the way um do you have preparations uh the, the amount of mental energy spent on masturbating about potential bad things that could happen if that if 10 percent of that was put into just a little bit of preparation uh, not the manic preparation just just be a man you know have have plans behind plans right for your family and for yourself right. just i that. love I love that you use the word masturbation. Just fucking relax. Yeah. I love that you use the word masturbation there because it really is that. And, and that mental masturbation is the idea that the way I define it anyway, is like, it feels good, but it, when you're over, when it's done, you created nothing. You squandered that energy. Mm. You squandered that energy. And um, we're getting close to the time that, uh, that I need to, let, let uh, me let, let me adjust that if I may real quickly. Yes, please that's do. Such a, that's such an interesting thing. Um, energy is never squandered. Energy goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. if, if that energy, that, that, that God force, which is in me, which is my attention, if that energy didn't go into me, my circle, my life and what I'm building, where the fuck did it go? Well, I'll tell you where it went. It went to someone else, somewhere else who's harvesting it. You think the TV and the media and social media doesn't harvest human spiritual attention? Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. You sacrificed a part of your own spirit for someone else's goals. Someone whose goals you probably would not support if you knew them. So rather than getting attached and sucked into this evil spider web of bullshit that's in the world, let it go. It doesn't matter. If you don't care about it, it gets nothing from you. I like that. I like that. I'm going to ponder on that one. I can tell. I can that that like that that stirred something in me that I'm going to ponder on. Yeah. I know you have enough awareness that if you uh, if you start looking down those lines, you'll see what you'll see where they go. It's good stuff. Um, before we, um, I'm, I'm, I didn't tell you this on the front end, but we're we're going to do a few rapid fire questions here at the very end. But before I go into rapid fire, um, two things. Um, where can people find out more about you? Just go ahead and, and throw your little, uh, whatever pitch plug, anything you've got coming on that you want people to know about you so that they can go find you. And then I'll do the next part after that. Okay. A uh, great website for me is warriorprotocol.com. Uh, the easiest place to connect with me is either Facebook, Simon Smart, uh, guy with a mohawk and a braided beard and a cigar probably, or Instagram, Simon J. Smart real easy to find. Uh, I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching to guys. As we move into 2024, I will also be running uh, events, most likely here in Southern Arizona, where not only will you have an opportunity to let go of the things holding you back as a man and start to understand not what I think masculinity is, but what your unique expression of it is. Um, I'll also make sure you leave with a great meditation practice. We'll do a lot of bioenergetics all of those shackles in your mind and your heart and your body that are stopping you doing the thing you know you want to do, stopping you saying the words you know you need to say, let's fucking break them so you can move on into the world as a more powerful man. Wonderful. Uh, the next thing is, as I was scrolling through your social media and stalking you, um, just take a couple of minutes and tell me about this project of taking puppies to prison. Oh, dude, yeah. Uh, this is something I was supporting for Thanksgiving. Uh, there's this energy of Black Friday, which is eclipsing the greed energy, right? Black Friday is eclipsing in modern culture, the thankfulness, gratitude energy of Thanksgiving. So I wanted to do 
something for Thanksgiving. Um, Puppies Behind Bars is an organization that uh, does a few really cool things. So what they do is they get puppies and they send them to prison where, you know, honestly, if you've ever had a dog, that's where some of those little fuckers belong. But um, they send puppies to prison and they have inmates who are trained how to train the puppies. So a wonderful skill in life. I don't know if you've ever trained a dog, Dave. I'm a dog lover. I have a Dutch Shepherd through the, the door here who's uh, trained as a protection dog, did it myself. Um, very, very hard work. If you want to learn patience, if you want to learn about a little thing called consistency, if you want to learn a little thing about every time my dog doesn't do what he wants, it's because I did not communicate clearly what I wanted him to do because dogs have only one desire, that's to please me. So dogs are beautiful for learning feedback. How great for these prisoners in prison to learn not just the skills of training, but having the experience of training a dog uh, to be a service dog. So these, these guys have these dogs for around two years. After that, the dogs are taken from them, which is tough, but necessary. Uh, these dogs are given to uh, combat veterans who were injured in the Iraq or Afghanistan campaigns, uh, first responders, um, law enforcement officers who've been injured as part of their job. Uh, so not only does this do great things for our, our heroes. Um, combat vets in particular are guys who are very close to my heart. A lot of my very close friends um, have, have, were in those campaigns. Um, but it also gives something for these guys in prison to do that's really useful for society. So Puppies Behind Bars, amazing organization. Wonderful. Um, thanks for sharing that. That uh, I had not noticed that or hadn't seen that until literally right before we got on the call and I was going through and getting my, you know, getting tuned into to to do this all right rapid fire round um the way i like to do this is i'll throw the question out whatever comes to mind you just answer it we'll go through six or seven questions and then we'll wrap it all up that sounds good to you sounds amazing all right first of all what is one useless talent that you have i have so many um rob oh my god let me come back to that one. I got to think about it. Next question. Um, a personal mantra or belief that you want to pass on to your children or your child? Uh, that's a great question. Um, never fucking flinch is one of them. And the other one is um, do the thing you need to do. Very simple. Most valuable piece of advice you've ever received? Most people are wrong about most of the things most of the time. Um, a funny or heartwarming dad moment or something funny that your kid has done or said? Oh, there are so many. Um, a lot of our, my funny moments with my kid are in the dojo. He's 13 now, so he trains with me. Um, he really likes training with me, but I put on a lot of pressure and joint locks and things. I do it in a way that um, uh, feels good in the end, you know, like a chiropractic adjustment. But um, some of the things he'll say to me, the squealing, the let go, I stop, 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 stop. Like he's, you know, he's really not enjoying it. But then as soon as I let go, he'll start laughing. It's right. hilarious because he's secretly um, enjoying it. Yeah. Um, favorite holiday? Christmas. Um, favorite meal? It's probably pizza. I don't do it very much, but man, like a good, a really, really good pizza made well, you know, cooked, cooked in the traditional oven. Can't be that. That's the most amazing thing. Uh, or uh, a lot of Japanese food. You know, I lived in Osaka for a while, so there's some uh, a lot of Japanese sushi is just amazing. I've visited Osaka before. I went to that. Uh, what's it? The 
I'll probably butcher the name, the temple there, Senju Senjindo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Central, yes, that's right. Yeah. Central the, Senjinji, I think it is. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, this was, yeah. this is nearly 30 years ago. Um, there was, uh, I forget what the whole story is about an archer that, that, that like shot for 72 hours continuously. I don't remember what the whole story was, but it was, it was fascinating to me at the time. Um, yeah, that guy was, that guy was a machine. I forgot the story as well, but I remember yeah, being impressed. Yeah. He just did not quit. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. are you a Van Halen fan? Moderately. I think there are better bands than Van Halen. I think, I think for guitar solos, uh, what's the Spanish guitar solo he does? It's like a very Spanish guitar. Set. Spanish fly. Spanish fly. That's a beautiful song. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, the 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 B part of that is um, David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar, which is what the real question is. Oh, Roth. Roth. Very good. Um, and the final one will be, what is a cherished family tradition that you hope to pass on? That like, you know, generations from now, they can look back and say, we got this from Simon. It's going to be questing. You know, I went through my first quest when I was 21. And uh, I'll quest my son, and uh, maybe he'll quest his son one day. Uh, I'm bringing that uh, tradition from the Apache into my line, and uh, that'll keep going. Fantastic. Anything else that you want to throw into the mix before we shut her down? Uh, actually, the useless skill I have is I like to play around with hy hypnosis. So mm. uh, fun little things like getting people's feet stuck to the floor so they can't move. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty useless skill, but um, with the right person, hilarious. That is hilarious. I'll have to keep that in mind whenever we meet face to face. Yeah. All right. Hey, man, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Really, yes, really, indeed. Really, really great chat. We'd love to do it again. All right. I appreciate you. And um, I'm going to stop recording now.